Welcome to The Reacher's Handbook, a podcast about making social media meaningful, finding your joy, and what to do when the life you'd imagined for yourself is stuck in committee. All right, story number one. Just as I was beginning seminary, my congregation moved into a new building that was formerly a Christian church. I was on the board at the time. I was also a general busybody with my own everything. So I was involved somehow in renovating the space to make it suitable for Unitarian Universalists. First and foremost, that meant removing the giant wooden cross from the front of the room. It's not that UUs are against Christianity. There's lots of people who are both UU and Christian. But there's also a lot of people who have baggage from Christian traditions. Then there's a lot of atheists and agnostics, Buddhists. Anyways, a giant cross looming over us every Sunday was a bit too much Jesus for the sanctuary. The theology of it was really clear. The practicalities of the implementation proved a little bit more tricky. This is how it sometimes goes with religion. Intrepid editor Trudy has in the show notes, this is how it goes with all human endeavors. So, wood is heavy. That whole the weight of the cross thing, it's not a metaphor. Even getting this thing off the wall was a feat of engineering and a near-death experience. And then what? A ginormous cross doesn't exactly fit in the back of the minivan. It was going to need to be cut into pieces, but you can't use the power saw in the building because sawdust flies everywhere. And there's a rule now about no power saws in the sanctuary. So this was the line of thinking that led me to a conversation with my friend Anne, who is a UU minister. This is a sensitive time for your neighbors, Anne explained gently to me. With the loss of the old church that shrank down until they couldn't afford their building. Your neighbors will be grieving, but there's also this great potential for new connection, for inviting people in. And Liz, the community's introduction to Unitarian Universalism? It can't be you taking a power saw to their cross on the front lawn of the old church, no matter how practical a solution you might think that might be. Anne has always been touchy-feely in that way. So I'm not sure exactly how the cross was removed. I think maybe someone had a workshop and they used it as reclaimed wood, which is this whole other wonderful metaphor I would love to unpack. In any case, the cross was gone. Whew. But here's the thing. It had hung there for many years, many lovely sunny years under huge vaulted windows. Rays of light had fallen over both cross and wall and they transformed all that they had touched. And so over the years, The paint around the cross had grown distinctly lighter, and the paint behind the cross had not, and so immediately behind the pulpit was a clear, stenciled shape. This could have been solved by repainting, of course, but in order to do that, we would have had to agree on colors, and the paint colors couldn't be chosen until the fabric for the new chairs was chosen, and the chairs were going to replace the pews, and to replace chairs with pews, there was a whole conversation about how we embody our values with our architecture, and how we think of authority, and we embody identity, and then the chairs committee run into some administrative challenges, and now there was some rediscussion of the covenant of right relations, and for many months, we didn't worship under a giant cross. Instead, we worshipped under the very conspicuous shadow cast by its absence. A giant, metaphorical, Jesus-was-here symbol stenciled above our heads. In more ways than one, actually. On the literal wall, of course, but also in the conspicuous role that the Protestant tradition we come from plays in 
everything we do. The tunes of the songs we sang, the piano accompaniment, the format of the sermon, the very fact we're meeting on a Sunday morning led by a professional in a building that was owned for that purpose. The content of our worship had expanded to be more inclusive, but the form it arrived in was untouched. To me, the shadow of the cross on the wall on Sunday mornings was a physical manifestation of a structure that was frozen in time. It said, we've decided to do things differently, but we're not actually doing any of that yet because the details of it are still stuck in committee. This happened to me about 10 years ago. I was in seminary. We were having these conversations about exactly this topic. We saw the current declines in church attendance and volunteerism and donations were eroding, all that. And we knew we had to change shape. That was the conversation. But it was happening in a university, in a seminary that was largely shaped the way seminaries have been shaped for many generations, with all the structures and the expense, the professors, the tenures, all that stuff. All of it embodied a certain way of thinking, like within a certain paradigm. To their credit, they understood the irony and they were working hard to deal with that. These were smart, hardworking, creative people. They were steering into it with this unflinching courage. There were paradigm shift committees and conversations and classes where we wrote paradigm shift essays. I mean, none of it was actually named that, but that's what we were doing. And all of it we did without acknowledging that you can't think your way out of a shadow. You can't correct centuries and centuries of doing everything a certain way by theorizing about doing it differently. You can't think your way out of a shadow. I spent so much of my time in seminary railing against everything around me, explaining we were doing it wrong, arrogantly asserting that I knew best. I felt I didn't fit in. Ironically, if I had actually read the assigned historical sermons and essays, I would have known that railing against everything, thinking you know best, and feeling that you don't fit in, pretty much the cliche UU ministerial formation journey. They don't actually assign it, but the expectation is that you should have at least one or two existential crises per semester. And if I'd been content to write essays about said crises, boy, I would have fit in just fine. But I wasn't content with that. I didn't think the problem would be solved by essays about getting out into the sun. I thought it would be solved by sun. Maybe you can empathize with what I was feeling. Maybe you too feel like the conversations in your field about how to adapt to the changing world are kind of missing the mark in some way. Maybe you want to try something else and you're not sure how to start. Maybe you're from traditional religious structures like me, and maybe you love your congregation or your religion, whatever your religion is, but you have like this sinking feeling that it's not going to be here in a generation. Maybe you have this feeling like we need to try some things differently. Maybe you do not love your congregation. Maybe you're disillusioned, frustrated, mad, and exhausted. A lot of people are. And maybe you can't help thinking there's got to be a better way to do this. Maybe you are personally feeling stuck in committee. And you have no idea how to find your way out. Or maybe you have this tug of a calling that you can't really define and you for sure have no idea how to pursue. Maybe, like I was, you're skipping out on the stuff you're supposed to be doing and spending a bunch of time on Facebook or YouTube and you know it's kind of toxic and a waste, but it's also kind of meaningful and not a waste in a way too. So I leaned into it. I cut way down on the seminary stuff and I amped up my experimental new media kind of stuff. My theory was there were already enough people arguing about how to steer the ship through the icebergs and that steering by committee is not the right strategy for ice infested waters. So I was going to head out in a tugboat to just try stuff out. 
Today, I run a UU humor organization called Mirth and Dignity. The largest thing we do is the UU Hysterical Society, which is a 150,000 person group on Facebook that reaches nearly 2 million people each month. But we also do podcasting and fundraising and online worship services and videos and content creation and an online store and way more things than I could list. And it's really fun. (laughs) And it works. And we hear from people all the time telling us what a difference we made in their day. But getting here was so hard. I had to learn so many new things. I had to learn how to think totally differently. I had to learn how to create content that gets like engagement without selling my soul to the algorithm gods and their evil last rage machine. I had to learn to crowdfund and get grants, run an online store. I had to learn to recruit others and get them to help me, which meant figuring out exactly what kind of person I was looking for and then figuring out how to excite them about being involved. And then I had to turn us into an organization with this completely different structure than anything I'd ever seen because our goals and our resources were different. Then we all had to learn together as we went things like how to run conversations among 150,000 people without letting them melt into a sinkhole of ultra-polarized flame wars. And how to be accountable to larger Unitarian Universalism and symbiotic with it, because there was no structure for any of that. We had to figure out all of it without any guidance, not because nobody wanted to help us, but because nobody had ever done what we were doing before. I don't know what it is that's tugging at you, But the chances are that you too are going to have to figure out a lot of stuff on your own. But you're not going to have to figure it out all alone. We're going to do it together. We're going to go over the nuts and the bolts of everything I just listed and a lot more and you will have a head start. Because this stuff isn't actually that complicated and it can be learned. I know because I'm a really crappy student and I learned it. You can learn it. Now, of course, maybe you don't have a thing that is tugging at you. Maybe you don't really want to be in new ministry maybe you would rather just be in old ministry or old whatever it is in your field maybe you love things as they've been and wish they would stay that way maybe you feel like all of this rapid change society social media blah blah is ripping us all apart and you wish we could slow it all down and i empathize i don't actually even think you're wrong but we're not going to be able to slow it down every person needs to figure out how they're going to navigate in a world that is changing very rapidly You don't have to learn how to podcast. You don't need to get on YouTube. But I think you probably will have to understand the world of the people who are doing these things. It will be better if the people doing my style of work understand what you're doing and why, and you understand what we are doing and why. And then I can create a Facebook group or a podcast that tells people about UUism through jokes and hilarity. You can be ready to pick up the baton when they're looking for something that's a little more than what I'm going to be able to offer them. I can't create that pipeline unless what we're both doing has this common thread that people can follow. And you're going to struggle to find new congregants if we don't have ways for people to learn about UUism. What we're seeing right now isn't religion falling apart. It's religion expanding. And we need to have each other's backs in this. So if you are listening to this out of a sense of reluctant duty, I want to start by saying this to you. I believe brick-and-mortar churches are in for a bumpy ride, but I believe nothing will ever replace them. But their walls will need to become more permeable. The connections will need to be stronger. If you are from traditional church, I hope you're here because you're excited about the new stuff and you want to be connected with it. But if you're actually here because you feel you have no choice and you're being dragged kicking and screaming, that's okay too. I'm just glad you're here. Whatever your field is, the thing that is encroaching on you right now, probably here to stay. 
I can't teach you how to fight it with any level of success. And I think you'd be wasting your time to try. But I can teach you how to become symbiotic with it. How to make sense of the paradigms that it's operating within. Okay, so what about those paradigms? What exactly is this glorious new way of thinking that will save us all? All right, I'm going to start with a story, which I got from the Facebook wall of a man named David Richards. One week ago, a TikTok user with Parkinson's posted a video expressing anger over how tiny the pills for treating Parkinson's are because it makes them really difficult to pick up when someone has something like, you know, Parkinson's. Four days ago, a guy who directs country music videos for a living and was previously most famous on TikTok for knowing obscure facts about Snapple taught himself how to use Fusion 360, a design and modeling tool, so he could design a pill bottle that solves this problem. Problem was, he didn't own a 3D printer, so he posted a video of his design and offered to share schematics with anyone who wanted to test it or improve on it. All schematics were open source. Three days ago, dozens of engineers and 3D printer enthusiasts had begun working on the project and started refining and tweaking to get tolerances where they needed to be and ensure that it actually met the needs of those who it was being designed for. Thirteen hours ago, there's a working prototype. It has, quote, less plastic than your average McDonald's toy and should be priced as such. The original designer has gotten a patent attorney to ensure that it remains open source and the patent itself will be donated to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. In the meantime, for anyone who needs one now and doesn't want to wait until manufacturing at scale begins, they can get one at cost from engineers printing them at home. So how would this problem have been solved a generation ago? Well, the guy with Parkinson's would have had to write the pill bottle company to a complaint. If there'd been enough pressure, some executive would decide to try and get a new design and they'd hire, I don't know, a pill bottle engineer or whatever they would hire. Then there'd be some prototypes. They'd want to get the design just right because you'd have to manufacture thousands of the things at once. So any mistake would be costly. It might take years if it happened at all. And when it did, it would improve everyone's experience who had Parkinson's, both the people who had asked for the new design and the ones who didn't even know that they needed it. So that would be how an institution would solve a problem like that. This institutional thinking is also what I was using in seminary, sitting in a group with a bunch of profs and students, theorizing about what the future would need of congregations and trying to design solutions and equip students with them. This is a great way to think if you're dealing with needs that are very similar and that scale widely and are predictable and that you have a little bit of time to adapt to. It's really easy to see how cost effective that way of thinking is when you look at something like the manufacturing of the pill bottle. This institutional mindset world is also the world religious structures have been inhabiting. Big consolidated institutions that can create things you couldn't make on a smaller scale like Hymnals and best practices, curriculums, training standards for religious professionals. Come up with a good way to run things, create a powerful framework, shadow of the cross style, and then you have this cohesive common action towards a shared end. This is a terrible strategy, though, for nurturing new ministries. I know because I created a new ministry in this environment. And as the hysterical society grew, the institutional response tended to be, okay, but how will this scale? Like, what use is this to congregations? How will it pay ministers? These are all excellent points. If we're going to adapt into the future by creating one solution that we will replicate at scale. But that's not what we need to do. Congregations don't want to become new media humor organizations. We just need the one. (laughs) Showing up at their door with a best practices manual for that, is going to result in some pretty solid and warranted pushback. But that's true of any solution that we might produce at scale, because the institutional model for solving problems rests on this assumption that we're going to relatively accurately predict what the future will look like, (laughs) 
and what the needs will be. And it requires that those needs are going to be fairly homogeneous from setting to setting. And it's going to mean that the recipients of the solution are compliant and eager for our direction, that they will line up for our advice, like people lining up outside the Apple store when the new iPhone has come out. I don't think we can bank on that. Frankly, we've been employing this try to figure it out institutional mindset for more than a decade. And some truly brilliant think tanks of incredibly dedicated people have been working really hard on it. The fact that we haven't figured it out yet isn't indicative of the lack of brilliance or effort. It's that the model we're working with needs to change. We need a new way of thinking about how we find solutions and move forward. Because any kind of one-size-fits-all solution is going to be met with pushback, no matter how well thought it is, because congregations aren't consumers. They are living, breathing, changing things with so many opinions. They're collections of real people. They're ecosystems. Let's step for a second out of the institutional thinking and into thinking like an ecosystem, just as an experiment. Ecosystem thinking solves problems in a totally different way. Instead of thinking it through to come up with a perfect solution, ecosystems just throw a bunch of seeds in the ground and see what comes up. That's why they call it going viral and not going well thought out solution figured out by a task group and then manufactured at scale. No, no, you just try. You see what takes off. This is different from institutions. Like, an institution of a publishing house needs to sort through all the manuscripts, pick the right one to print this year. A blogging platform solves this problem like an ecosystem. Throw them all in. Just see what takes. Low investment. Lots of trial and error. When the guy who designed the pill bottle was asked how he knew his design would work, you know what he said? He said he didn't know. His main area of expertise was Snapple. But they weren't doing a print run of 10,000 or anything. It didn't matter. He made a design. He put it up. He was using ecosystem thinking. Try out some stuff. Hank Green, who runs VidCon, Blog Brothers, Nerd Viteria, and the Foundation to Decrease World Suck, and does incredible, wildly successful stuff I would call new ministry, talks about giving everything 80% of its best effort. In Hank's world, you don't polish a thing endlessly. You get it out there so people interact with it, and then you learn from their reactions, and you make the next one. Ali Abdal, a very successful YouTuber, also doing something I would describe as new ministry, encourages YouTubers to understand that the first task is to make about 40 crappy videos, just to get the hang of it. Everyone does this, he points out. And if you scroll through the back catalog of any YouTube channel you love, you will find abundant evidence of it in the first few dozen videos. I find it hard to imagine a way of thinking more at odds with UU culture than this. Oh, we're just going to make 40 really bad videos and put them out. Or can you imagine standing up in a general meeting to say, I think the resolution we're discussing is about 80% of the way through being debated, so how about we just pass it as pretty good and move on to the next thing? No, 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 no. We want to do our best work. We want to say it well. We want the position statement that we are going to release for nobody to read to be a 100% perfect representation of our democratically agreed-to position. And if the work churches are doing is failing... We will give it more than 100% then. We will try harder. We will tweak the model. We will predict the needs of the future generations, even though we all kind of understand that we don't even know what the world is going to be like in 10 years or even one year. What would ecosystem thinking suggest instead? Not trying to predict things. Ecosystems don't predict. They don't design perfect models. In fact, when one version of something is doing super well, we say that whole ecosystem is fragile. 
We call the thing that's doing well an invasive species or a cancer, and it makes things worse for everything in the system. Because a healthy ecosystem isn't one with the tidy circle of life where the grass grows from the dirt and then it gets eaten by the bunny who gets eaten by the fox who becomes dirt when he dies. No follow-up questions, please. No, that's a fragile ecosystem. It's one bunny plague away from collapsing. And a religion that's made of churches, even if they are thriving churches, is fragile in a changing world. Because if people stop being into church, the religion dies. A healthy ecosystem is a diverse one. A food web, not a food chain. A zillion creatures all eating each other, and then when there's a bunny plague, the foxes just eat something else for a while and it's fine. Institutional thinking actually guides us away from this kind of health. Because it's looking for standards and predictability and homogeneity. To an ecosystem, those things represent fragility. Health looks like no one thing doing super well. It's a bunch of things interconnected because that diversity is how you have resilience in the face of unpredictable change. The diversity and the interconnection. Because just having a lot of people doing different things, that's not a diverse ecosystem. It's a diversified stock portfolio. The interconnections matter. It's important that lots of people try lots of different things, but it's also important that they try those things while maintaining a connection to the more traditional things that are happening without becoming disillusioned and without feeling undervalued, which means we're going to have to think carefully about how we do things like collegiality and polity and how we value one another's work. Which starts with you, person having the strange weird idea who thinks like you don't quite fit in. I'm so glad you don't fit in. We need more things and more people that don't fit. And so for you to realize your potential, you're going to need to internalize how good a thing it is that you don't fit all the way down to your bones. You're going to need to value the very things about you that are a little bit different. Ideally, you would learn to do this at the start. You can learn to do it in an ad hoc way. I did. The U Hysterical Society had been successful for quite some time before I clued into the reason that I had been able to start it. Because of my inabilities. I wasn't able to read the books that were required to be a minister because my attention span does not work that way. My and deficit is the reason I was able to think differently. The professor would say, people need to work harder to pay attention. And I would think, no, we need to work harder to be interesting for people. Paying attention was really hard for me. And I resented people who put all of the responsibility on me to work harder and didn't think about how to make their message easy and accessible. And that's why I love humor. That's why I was able to create a humor-based organization where my thought was, we need to make it interesting for you. I couldn't have done that if I was someone who was just able to buckle down. My flaws were my assets because they were the thing that was different and didn't fit. And I'm not the only one. It turns out that's how change works. John Green is another example. He failed out of seminary because he couldn't toe the line on some theological stuff. And he went on to have this incredible career, making what I can only describe as some of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. Accessible to people who had doubts like his. Link in the show notes. Glennon Doyle, the amazing author of Untamed and the head of Monastery, wasn't allowed to serve lemonade as a volunteer because she had a criminal record. And she had a habit of blurting overly honest things, which was also a problem. And an asset. And it's the reason she was able to found Monastery. Link also in the show notes. Your thing probably won't be as big as either of their things. Mine wasn't. 
But that's the beauty of ecosystem thinking. You're not looking to be big. You don't want to become the next cancer or invasive species. You're looking to find a niche that fits you, where what you have to offer meets the world's needs in a sustainable way. That's it. That's the criteria. World needs, you offer, it's sustainable. Great. It doesn't have to fit into some kind of preordained shadow on the wall. It doesn't have to be something that we've seen before. In fact, it needs to not fit. Step one is to stop thinking about the thing you're supposed to have to offer and start thinking about the thing you do have to offer. Because we already have a bunch of that other thing and what we need is the weird whatever it is that you're trying to figure out how to suppress. So every episode, I'm going to start with a story and I'm going to end with an exercise. This week's exercise digs into the idea that a diverse ecosystem is a healthy ecosystem. That the thing that's causing you not to fit, that you're mistaking for a bump that needs to be filed down, that thing might be precious. Maybe it's not. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. Some things just suck. But spend a week trying on for size the idea that maybe this thing might be divine guidance. Like whether or not you believe in God. If you do believe in God, great. I presume you believe in a God that made you as you are on purpose. So dive into that. If you don't believe with God, go with the ecosystem image. That the web as a whole needs a lot of things that are different. And odds are good that whatever your difference is, it will guide you towards a unique niche. Maybe it won't, but it might. Just play with it for a week. See what you can learn. What if the pieces that don't fit are actually your greatest assets? You won't know until you try, and you won't try until you change your thinking. So next episode, we're going to talk about how to get started on actually doing the thing. You've been listening to The Reacher's Handbook, a Mirth and Dignity production. For more information about Mirth and Dignity, the UU Hysterical Society, or the UU comedy podcast, The Cracked Cup, that Liz co-hosts with Ann Barker, see links in the show notes. If you want to be on our mailing list, or if you want to learn more about upcoming preaching or congregation visits by Liz, also check out the show notes. The Reacher's Handbook was created using a generous grant from the UU Funding Panel and the support of our Mirth and Dignity's Patreon community. Information about both of those is also in the show notes. Music for The Reacher's Handbook is done by Blue Dot Sessions, and editing and producing is done by yours truly, Anwin Dyko. Thanks for listening, and get unstuck from that committee.